Good morning, church family. Delightful to be with you on this gorgeous Sunday morning here in Texas. Looks like the sun is coming out and uh, just going to be another beautiful day here and a beautiful day to worship the Lord as always on Sunday mornings. And uh, it's just a joy uh, for me to be with you all. And so looking forward to uh, just another great day of worship here. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, which will follow, Nehemiah will follow in the beginning of the new year. Uh, and we're calling this message Resistance. Uh, we've seen so far uh, return to the land, and we've seen rebuilding, and now we're going to see resistance in Ezra chapter 4. Well, uh, before we get into the word, let's ask the Holy Spirit for help that we might understand it and hear what he has for us today. Lord God, we, we just thank you for the opportunity to be together. Uh, Lord, for the opportunity to study your word and uh, for a book that seems obscure and remote, uh, 2,500 years old like Ezra is, Lord. There is just a rich treasure of, of uh, lessons here for us, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would come now and help us to receive them, Lord, and uh, to implement them in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, uh, every January 1st, uh, millions of people uh, make resolutions, right? They, most of the most common resolution is to lose weight and to exercise. That's what everybody decides to do. And uh, most people start off really strong, uh, but then after a week, uh, some give up. Uh, after two weeks, uh, pizza seems a whole lot more enticing than an hour on the treadmill. Uh, and after a month, most people are using their brand new treadmill as a clothes hanger, and they owe 11 months on a gym membership that they're never going to use. Uh, but that's the case with uh, starting strong. Uh, resolutions are easy, uh, but following through uh, is a difficult thing. Uh, we're motivated by this picture that we have in our minds of, of this younger, leaner, stronger-looking uh, selves if we can stay on course. But uh, finishing the task requires continued commitment, and it's sometimes hard to keep that. Uh, for weight loss and exercise, the resistance is usually internal, right? It's, it's a battle with ourselves, uh, and our power, our willpower wanes, uh, and sometimes we just give up. Uh, but with other kinds of resolutions, the, the, the pressure, uh, the resistance is more external. It comes from the outside, and we'll see that in our passage today in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, as we've seen so far, uh, in this, uh, this, this book of Ezra, the ex exiles returned from their exile uh, in Babylon in chapters 1 and 2. And they started to rebuild the temple in chapter 3. Uh, but of course, whenever we're trying to do something for the Lord, there is always going to be resistance. Uh, Ezra tells us and shows us that the people of the Lord still had enemies. Uh, and so when we step out, when, when we try to do the Lord's work, we are going to face resistance from people because Satan doesn't want us to be successful for the Lord. He doesn't want us to succeed in living for God's glory. And he wants to throw up roadblocks wherever he can to either derail or delay uh, what we're trying to do. So we'll be discouraged. So we'll give up. And so Ezra 4 is all about resistance to the exile's temple rebuilding program, uh, and even more importantly, how they reacted to the resistance that they uh, faced. And so uh, there's a lot going on in this chapter. If you just read through it, you might miss that there are a couple of time jumps that happen uh, in this chapter. So we're going to go through this carefully so we see uh, what happens, because what we learn in Ezra 4 is that his interest is not really writing chronologically the, event, the events of this present day in, in about 536 B.C. that he's talking about with this first return of exiles. 
He's writing more thematically, uh, talking about uh, all the persecution uh, that, that Israel faced in rebuilding the temple, the city, the walls that occur uh, back in 538 BC and about the hundred years that follow. Uh, and so that's what we're going to see this week. So I said he's going to jump forward in time two times. So I want to show you this timeline. Uh, just to show you what's going on here before we get into it, because uh, the, the chapter begins, uh, verses 1 through 5, in 536 B.C. This is uh, the, the exiles that we've been talking about since chapter 1. The exiles have returned, and they're rebuilding the temple, the second temple, which is some kind, sometimes called Zerubbabel's temple, because he was the one in charge of building it. Uh, and so that's during the reign of Cyrus. Uh, so these first five verses have to do with that time period. But then in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, he's going to jump forward in time to describe a period of persecution that happened under the next king, Ahasuerus, who uh, is also known as King Xerxes. Uh, this is the guy who is the king during the book of Esther. Uh, and this is about 50 years later, after what we're talking about here in, in verses 1 through 5. Uh, there's only one verse uh, devoted to the persecution that happens under Ahasuerus. That's Ezra 4, 6. And then starting in verse 7 and going to verse 23, he's going to jump forward again, probably another 40 years in time to uh, just before the events of the book of Nehemiah, probably in the mid-440s uh, B.C. Uh, so there's, there are three different types or th three different uh, historical events of persecution here that Ezra is talking about. Uh, and so that's where we land at the end of verse 23. And then, to confuse things more, in verse 24, to wrap up the chapter, he jumps back in time again uh, to where he was originally talking about, 536, back to uh, the rebuilding and the stoppage of work on Zerubbabel's temple. Uh, so I hope that's not confusing for you. We're going to go through it as we go. Well, hopefully we'll be able to figure out what's going on here. But uh, the, the overall... Uh, theme here, at least in the first five verses, is this, is this resistance to the rebuilding of Zerubbabel's temple. And first, we're going to see that their enemies offer to help. Uh, so when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Well, this seems like a genuine offer from the people of the land. And it really feels rude, right, for Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua to, to come out, like, you know, with hands almost against these people. Uh, so upset, it seems, uh, almost rude uh, and offensive to deny their help. Uh, they say that they seek after the God of Israel, that they, uh, the Israelites themselves, uh, worship. And they say they've been sacrificing to him uh, for years, since the days of Asarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought them up here, which is 150, 200 years earlier. They've been in the land a long time. So what's going on here? What is up with the hostility, the hostility that they uh, give to these people in the land? So are they being rude or is there a good reason why they uh, refuse their help? Well, what we ought to see uh, right off the bat is that uh, Ezra calls them the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, right? So that should give us a hint right away uh, that, that maybe their intent is not all that pure. Uh, 
but for some context about who these people are, uh, we need to look at uh, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. Uh, chapter uh, 17 of 2 Kings basically chronicles what happened with those northern tribes of Israel who had been exiled by Assyria uh, and what happened to the peoples that remained in the land. So it's a long chapter. Obviously, I'm not going to stand up here and read like 40-something verses. But to summarize it, uh, what happened is uh, we know that, that the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts, right? The ten northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes of Judah. In 722 uh, BC, Assyria exiled the northern tribes. It was a God-ordained exile, a conquest because of Israel's sin. So uh, the king took most of the Israelites out of Israel, deported them to Assyria. Some of the Jews remained there. Then what the king did was that he repopulated those ten northern tribes, uh, the, the, the land of the ten northern tribes, with, with pagans. And the pagans uh, ended up intermarrying with the Israelites who stayed in the land. And what happened was that the paganism of these uh, foreign tribes dominated rather than uh, the, the God of Israel and his uh, laws and his commands. So uh, what happened is Second Kings 17 tells us that lions came into the land and started eating the people. And so uh, the king of Assyria recognized that this was a problem. And so he sent a Jewish priest back into the land uh, to teach them the ways to live uh, in the land uh, so as to not incur God's wrath. Uh, so these are the people who are in the land. These are the people who then feared God, but they also served their own gods. And so uh, what the author of 2 Kings says is that they continued these wicked practices right up until this day, uh, the day that Ezra is referring to. So these are the people of the land. These are the people who have intermarried with the pagans. They're uh, engaging in pagan practices. These are the people who came to be known as the Samaritans. Uh, and they are, they are of mixed heritage and they are of mixed allegiance, not only to the God of Israel, but to various other pagan gods. So they feared God, but they also worshipped their own gods. They served their own gods, which is really another way of not fearing the God of Israel, right? Uh, whenever we mix religions, whenever we worship the God of Israel and any other God, well, we're not really understanding who God is and how we are to revere him uh, when we worship other gods. So these are the people who wanted to help. And so uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua wisely said no. They, they understood who these people were. And it's not like they couldn't have used the help. They certainly could have. That, that's not what it was about. It was that their help would have actually hurt. It would have caused the project to get derailed. It might have destroyed their mission. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is syncretism syncretism. Now, syncretism is the mixing or the synchronizing of two or more belief systems uh, into one, so the, the original one gets lost. And that's what was going to happen with these uh, Samaritans. They may have been sacrificing to God, but when you're sacrificing your own children to idols, well, you're not really worshiping the one true God, right? And so that's what syncretism is. It blends religion so that the real true religion is lost. And syncretism has always been a problem in the church. That was not new back then. It's not new today. Uh, today, there are many examples, but to me, the, the one that comes to mind uh, most significantly is, is the blending of the gospel of grace with the gospel of works. Uh, the gospel of works is an insidious thing because it makes us earn our salvation. Uh, so the gospel of works adds performance to the gospel of grace. So 
Yes, grace, but also uh, circumcision uh, in some circles, sacraments, baptism, uh, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, uh, a resume uh, full of other works, depending on which denomination you happen to practice in. Some of these things are very important uh, to salvation. Uh, And so we understand that the gospel of grace uh, is simply that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And by faith in him, we get salvation. And so that's the gospel of grace. When we start adding gospels of works to it, then they become syncretized and you end up having a false gospel. So blending the false gospel with the true gospel is syncretism. Uh, Imagine a group of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses came to us and said, you know, we'd love to help you build a beautiful new building on your back property back there if you'll only let us worship with you. Well, you know, it might be nice to have their help and it might be nice to have their contribution of their finances, but, you know, we're not going to accept that offer, right? Because they don't worship the same God we worship. They worship a different God. The result will be syncretism. It will destroy the gospel of grace uh, because we don't worship the same God. And that would be like a cancer in the church that we would have a very hard time cutting out. Well, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they recognize the danger of these uh, other people in the land uh, and having them mingle with them. And so they said to them, you have nothing in common with us. Now, they said they do have something in common with them, right? They, they worship the God of Israel just like they do. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua said, no, no, you don't. You don't worship the God of Israel because you sacrifice your children to idols. You worship other gods. That's antithetical to worship of the God of Israel. So you might think you worship the same God, but you don't. Um, and we'll see as we go through that, that this probably was a subterfuge for uh, more uh, insidious and, and uh, uh, devious idea that they might derail the project. So uh, Ezra called them enemies before we even find out any of the facts about what uh, we knew about these people, uh, even before they offered to help. So uh, we see an offer to help, we see a refusal, and then once there is this refusal, well now the hostilities step up, right? They tried to ask nicely, they tried to infiltrate subtly, uh, and when that didn't work, uh, they decided that they were going to uh, increase hostilities. And uh, one commentator said this was like a game of chess. Uh, The the, the, uh, pagans made the first move. Uh, and Zerubbabel wisely countered, you know, he blocked Bishop Three or whatever. Uh, and then uh, they had another move, and, and their next move was hostility. Uh, and, and so after uh, Zerubbabel rebuffed their, their uh, efforts, well, these pagans had another tactic, uh, and that was hostility and violence. So the enemies uh, frustrate their reconstruction uh, in verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they have enemies. They're in the land. They're they're actively uh, opposing them now as opposed to a subtle infiltration. Uh, They did three things. They discouraged the people uh, from uh, building the building. And so uh, what would that look like? Probably, you know, standing nearby, uh, on site, criticizing everything that they did, uh, reminding them of the enormity of the task, and, and uh, just, you know, in their ear all day long saying, you're never going to complete this thing. You're never going to complete this thing. You'll never succeed. Well, that would beat you down after a while, right? Day after day, hour after hour of that. 
Uh, so that's the first thing they did. Uh, then they frightened them from building. So this probably came in the form of physical threats, maybe even actual violence uh, against the builders. And then the last thing they did was to send counselors, uh, probably both to the people trying to rebuild the building and to the government officials in Persia uh, trying to frustrate the temple's completion. Well, that's a lot to have to face. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that whenever we attempt something for God, uh, Satan is always there, right? Trying to, trying to mess it up. Uh, you all have testimonies about how Satan does this in your lives. You're stepping out for the Lord. You're doing a great thing for him. And it doesn't work out. You know, Satan throws up a roadblock here, a roadblock there. Something happens uh, because Satan doesn't want us to, to succeed. And if he can't stop it outright, he's going to work to delay. He's going to work to discourage it any way possible. So we need to understand as believers who are trying to do the Lord's work that the question is not whether we will face resistance, right? We will face resistance. There's no question about that. Uh, Jesus warned us in the Beatitudes about this, right? He said, blessed are you, or blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And Paul also reminds us, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So again, the question is not, will we be persecuted? Will we face opposition? Will they resist us? They will. The question is, how will we respond to it? How will we react to it when we see uh, Satan working through people to resist the efforts that we're doing for God? Now realize, remember, these Jews started really well, right? They came back, they, they decided to leave Babylon, they trekked hundreds of miles across difficult terrain uh, to land back in their land because they were determined, they were resolved that they were going to do the Lord's work. They rebuilt, right? First they built the altar, then they went and gathered all the building materials that they would need to lay the foundation of the temple, and they succeeded in that as well. Uh, but then, resistance. Then they countered their enemies, uh, encountered their enemies' resistance, and, and even to the point where they were able to, to rebuff the, the, our enemies' first move, uh, but they had no answer for the persecution, the violent persecution and discouragement uh, that came after that. And so what we learn is that Satan has a lot of arrows in his quiver, right? He doesn't have just one, and if that doesn't work, well, you know, Satan throws up his hands and says, well, I guess that didn't work. No, Satan's got a lot of different ways to derail projects, to get in our way, to, 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 to stop what we're trying to do. So if he couldn't derail the project with subtle infiltration, he comes with fear and intimidation. And that tactic worked. The Jews had no answer for it. And what we see in verse 4 and what we'll see in verse 24 is that the building construction, the temple construction, actually stopped. They succeeded in uh, stopping it all the way until the days of Darius, king of Persia, which is 16 years down the road. For 16 years, that temple foundation laid there with nobody doing anything with it. So the question for us is, do we recognize Satan's tactics? Do we recognize it when we're trying to do something for the Lord uh, and we see that it's just not going well uh, because Satan is doing something to gum up the works? You know, Satan uh, acts as a, as a, or he masquerades as an angel of light, right? We see that in the Bible. But we also see that he attacks like a roaring lion. He's got various tactics that he uses uh, to derail projects, but he always comes for the people of God when they're taking a stand for God. And so, 
uh, one thing that happened to, to our family was that when we were trying to move to Dallas, you know, we were so convinced that we were in the Lord's will and, and this is what the Lord wants. We were so excited to move to Dallas and to start seminary and to start doing work for the Lord. The only thing that had to happen was that we had to sell our house. And we thought it was a very nice house. We thought it would sell quickly. We thought, just put the for sale sign on the lawn and we'll be in Texas two months hence. Well, it didn't work out that way. Uh, it took over almost two years to sell our house. And the entire time uh, we're thinking, God, what's going on here? Uh, but it's Satan who gummed up the works and, and just made it extremely difficult for us to sell the house. And, you know, I recognize it now as God's mercy and God's perfect timing. It, it would not have been good if we got here when we hoped to get here. Uh, so God was merciful and his timing was right. But from my perspective, uh, on, on the earthly side, all I could see was Satan getting in the way of everything that we were trying to do. Uh, but what we also learned through that is no matter what Satan throws at us, we have to keep going, right? And, and in your lives too, whatever Satan throws at you, you need to keep going. Uh, God can handle these things, right? In fact, God is sovereign over it all and he uses everything to achieve his purposes. We keep going in the face of resistance. I was blessed to be at a pastor's retreat this week. Uh, whereas uh, with seven or eight other pastors and we were all together studying the book of Galatians, which is why we're studying Galatians after Easter. Uh, so my grand plan, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Galatians after Easter. Well, the reason why we were there was to just to talk about Galatians. And, and one pastor said something that I thought was really neat. We were talking about always going forward no matter what. And he says, if you look in your hymnal, there is no hymn called Backward Christian Soldier, right? It's called Onward Christian Soldier. We march on. We always go forward in the face of adversity. Whatever it is, we don't retreat when we face resistance. Now, of course, this assumes that we're doing the Lord's work, right? Satan really doesn't pay attention to people who are not doing the Lord's work, people who call themselves Christians but aren't doing anything. Uh, Satan doesn't really bother uh, with them. But for those who are really trying to advance the kingdom, if we're actively seeking to spread the gospel, to bring hope to the lost, to disciple each other, uh, and living out the Great Commission, we are going to face persecution. We're going to find ourselves in Satan's crosshairs. If we're evangelizing, making disciples, increasing our giving, or even just trying to pray and read the Bible more, uh, Satan is always going to be there. He's going to notice and he's going to attack. So we can't retreat when that happens. We go forward and we let God be our defender. All right, that's verses 1 to 5. Now we're about to do the leap. You ready? We're going to leap forward in time. Verse 6, we're going to jump forward here about... 50 years. Remember, Ezra is writing thematically, not chronologically, uh, recounting the near 100-year history of persecution against Israel in the land as they tried to rebuild the temple and the city and the walls, stretching from the beginning of the book of Ezra all the way until the end of the book of Nehemiah. So, as I said, Ezra chapter 4, verse 6 is a fast-forward in time, about 50 years to persecution suffered under Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes. This is the king uh, who reigned during the time of Esther. So Ezra 4.6, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, that's it. That's all we know about it. Uh, reigned, Ahasuerus reigned from about 485 to 465. So again, we were, in, we were just in about 536. So we're jumping forward about 50 years here uh, to somewhere around 485, the beginning of Ahasuerus' reign. 
Now, the Bible doesn't mention this persecution anywhere else, uh, nor do we know of any persecution uh, that, 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 that this would correspond with in any secular record. So we just don't really know what Ezra is referring to here. Uh, but I think it's, it's obvious that some persecution was going on, and Ezra's purpose is to show the continuity of persecution against Israel from uh, its beginning, really. But during this 100-year period, it started in Ezra, went all the way through Ezra, uh, all the way through the days of Nehemiah. So uh, this, this uh, continuity here will give the reader greater appreciation for what the Israelites had to overcome in order to complete the project of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city. Now, we're going to learn next week that the temple was rebuilt, it was completed in 515 B.C., we're in 485 BC, so we're at least 30, 30 years past the completion of the temple. So we're talking about now persecution against Israel as they're building the walls and they're building the city. All right, so that's what we know about verse 6 and Ahasuerus's um, persecution. Now, as we jump forward to verses 7 to 23, now we're in a new period of persecution after the temple was built, but during the rebuilding of the city and the walls. Uh, and Ezra uh, is, is now going to talk about this persecution uh, by King Artaxerxes, who, uh, pre, who uh, followed King Ahasuerus. And so now we're jumping forward another probably 40 years to the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, which those events began around 445 or so BC. Uh, so that's what's going on here. Now, remember, Ezra returned with the second wave of exiles. His, his life, uh, he, he returns in 458. So he wasn't present during the first six chapters. He comes on the scene in chapter seven. In the first six chapters, he's writing history uh, in chapter seven. Now he comes on the scene. And so what he's describing here in verses seven to 23 are things that actually happened during his lifetime uh, between uh, 465 and 425, uh, the days when, when uh, he actually lived. So uh, let's see what he's got to say about the resistance during the time of Artaxerxes. Now, if you look at your Bibles, verses 7 to 10 is a long list of people who kind of signed on to this letter of protest against the Jews. So I'm going to skip that. But what we'll see there is that there are various government officials, various scribes, and there are common people. And they surely subscribe to the, to the uh, power in numbers theory because there were a whole bunch of people who signed this letter talking about what awful people these Jews were and how they should be stopped from their construction. So here's what we see in the letter that they wrote to Artaxerxes, uh, starting in verse 11. Now this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him, to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we are in the service of the palace and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, Therefore, we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record books and learn that that city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it from past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. So... 
what do you think of these guys, right? Uh, they're, they're sending this letter. They're obviously trying to butter up the king, uh, trying to curry favor uh, with them uh, by pledges of loyalty and self-flattery to Artaxerxes. Uh, this is a network of spies. They're, they're out trying to uh, talk about what these Jews are doing so that they can uh, get good favor in exchange. And so their enemies give several reasons uh, why Artaxerxes should stop the Jews from building. They, they'll stop paying taxes. They won't pay their customs and tolls. That's verse 13. Uh, their king, the king's reputation would be hurt. That's verse 14. And the king would have no land beyond the river. That's the Euphrates River. Uh, verse 14, if he allowed them to rebuild. So they encourage Artaxerxes, check the historical records. You'll see this is an obstinate people. This is a stubborn people. They're a rebellious people. Now, Artaxerxes would have gone back. He could have gone back. Uh, he probably didn't have the biblical record, but he probably had secular records that would talk about uh, perhaps King Hezekiah's withholding of tribute to uh, the king of Babylon uh, or the king of Assyria in 2 Kings chapter 18 and Zedekiah's attempt to resist Babylonian captivity in 2 Kings chapter 24. Uh, so the scribes who were writing this letter, they knew how to push King Artaxerxes' buttons. And contextually, uh, Artaxerxes was having trouble with uh, the Greeks and the Egyptians as well. Uh, so he was probably quite sensitive to anybody who was going to be uh, you know, raising, causing trouble in his kingdom. Uh, so the letter ended up having its desired effect because here's what Artaxerxes wrote back. Then the king sent an answer to Rahum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it. That mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem governing all the provinces beyond the river and that tribute, custom and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem, to the Jews, and stopped them by a force of arms. Well, they succeeded, didn't they? Or so it seems. Uh, notice that Ezra, who is just a Jewish priest, he seems to have access to, to all these governmental letters uh, from the king, correspondence from uh, internal, uh, you know, correspondence between officials in the kingdom. He had reached a high position uh, somehow in Persian government before he returned with the second wave of exiles in 458. But Artaxerxes reads this letter, uh, and, he, and he does the research, and he learned that Jerusalem had indeed been a rebellious and powerful city. Uh, and so in the interest of, of stopping a potential uprising and causing more damage to his kingdom, uh, he stops the work. And of course, you can imagine the enemies gleefully uh, running to the scene uh, with their weapons and with uh, shaking a copy of the letter and stopping work uh, on site uh, immediately. And so... Uh, what I want us to see, though, is, is that though the letter seemed to have uh, a, 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 it seemed to be a victory for the Jews at the time, it's going to end up backfiring on them because uh, Artaxerxes says uh, that you'll stop until a decree is issued by me, which sets up what is going to happen in the book of Nehemiah because later on 
Nehemiah was able to go to King Artaxerxes and get Artaxerxes' uh, permission to rebuild the wall. And so what seemed like a win for the Jews ended up being even a stronger uh, uh, permission slip for the Jews to continue to rebuild because now they had Artaxerxes' uh, stamp on that approval, which we'll see when we get to the book of Nehemiah. All right. It's been a little confusing. I grant you that. I hope you've been able to keep up with me uh, and what's going on in this chapter. We started in chapter 4, at, four at the beginning of chapter 4 in 536 B.C. Verse 6 is around 484, 485 B.C. Verses 7 to 23 is 464 to 444 B.C. And now we're jumping back in time again, back to the building of Zerubbabel's temple where Ezra started back in 536 B.C. as we get to 424 uh, then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we have three separate historical incidents here of persecution against the Jews over this 100-year period. Uh, we see that the opposition was severe, and it was persistent, and it was even violent at times for them to accomplish their purposes uh, against the Jews, and, and accomplished uh, with, by people with the highest access to levels of government. And uh, that's relevant to us today because it is the people in the highest levels of government today who are going to be the ones who authorize persecution against Christians. And we see that going on today, and it's only going to get worse. Well, that's the same thing that happened uh, back 2,500 years ago. And so uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? People will always persecute the people of God. So uh, for these people who were in the land, uh, how discouraging to, to, to have their work stopped uh, as they were in process of trying to do the work of the Lord. Uh, in the end, we're going to see that they're able to build the temple, the city, and the walls. But in the meantime, uh, there is going to be difficulty because they faced resistance and they were not able to uh, handle that resistance. <clears throat> so let's think about a few things that we can learn from this chapter. The first thing <clears throat> is that God will accomplish his sovereign will. If God wants something done, it's going to get done, right? Uh, he wanted this temple and these walls and the city rebuilt, and, and he will get it done, uh, but it's going to take a little longer. Uh, God used uh, kings and common people to accomplish his purposes throughout the Bible. We see that. So for you and I, we need to recognize God's sovereignty in our lives, in the things we're trying to accomplish for God, and even in the resistance that we receive. God uses it all to work things out for his purposes. God has a plan. Uh, and when we face resistance, remember that God uses that resistance to accomplish his purposes. Maybe it's to strengthen us. Maybe it's so that other people will join the work. Uh, we don't necessarily know what God's purposes are. But when we look at the mountain and we say, uh, Lord, I can't do this. Well, yeah, we can't do this. But we have a God who is powerful and who has a plan and who is able to accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. Uh, so we should not be discouraged when we face resistance. If we want or if he wants a task done, it's going to get done. Well, we might hear that and say, well, then do we just let go and let God? Is that the answer? Well, no, that's not the answer either, because sometimes God accomplishes his will through our tenacity, right? Through our grit. That's what's required sometimes. Now, when we think about that, remember that no one ever faced more opposition than Jesus did, right? Uh, every day of his ministry was a new opportunity for his opponents to intimidate him, to harass him, to try and stop his mission. 
But Jesus resolutely marched forward to the cross to fulfill his mission, even though he knew uh, what was going to happen there, how painful that would be, and the separation from his father. And if anyone ever came close to the kind of persecution that Jesus suffered, well, it had to be the Apostle Paul, right? Beaten, stoned, left for dead. Uh, He could have given up and given in, but instead he marched forward, spreading the gospel wherever he went, even though he knew it would eventually cost him his life. He considered his life worth nothing compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And so that's the model. God wants us to be tenacious too. We don't just sit back and let God accomplish his will. He's going to accomplish his will through us, through his tenacious and gritty people. And so the final thing is that revival begins when we overcome resistance. Jesus started a revival, but it was opposed, right? Paul continued that revival and he was opposed every step of the way. And we're following in Paul's footsteps just 2,000 years later. We're going to be opposed and we should not be surprised by this. But revival happens when, by God's grace and God's sovereignty, we refuse to back down to the intimidation uh, from Jesus' opponents in the world today. The world wants us to be quiet. They don't want us to talk about Jesus. They don't want us sharing our faith. Uh, And so they want to shut us up any way they can. Now, I'm sure uh, you've heard about the 17 missionaries who were kidnapped and are being held uh, in Haiti right now. What were they doing there? Why are they in Haiti? Well, they're in Haiti because they spread it, they're spreading the gospel and they consider their lives of no worth uh, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, just like Paul was doing. So much so that they are willing to give their lives for it. And so God wants the same tenacity. He wants the same grit from us. Now, what will that look like in the church? Our church, what will that look like in our church? I'm asking you and I'm asking me to really evaluate ourselves, to really evaluate our walk with Christ and and just ask ourselves, are we fully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to spreading his word and the gospel to the to the lost? Are we are we fully committed to making disciples, uh, new converts who need to be shepherded? Are we fully committed to these things or, or have we become, me included, a little comfortable are we a little comfortable? Have we, have we settled? Or, or are we still stretching ourselves? Are we still trying uh, to reach the lost? Uh, and are we still trying to make disciples as best we can? Uh, we need to look at that. We need to ask ourselves that question. God wants us to be marching forward, not to grow comfortable. So whether we're talking about evangelism, discipleship, inviting people outside the walls of this church to come on in and hear the gospel, Uh, starting a neighborhood Bible study uh, in your house. Uh, All of these things are going to bring us into contact with people who oppose Jesus and who will oppose us as well. And just like getting, uh, starting to get in shape uh, is easy, but finishing is hard. Sometimes our spiritual growth and revival is the same way. It, It happens in fits and starts, right? Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. And that's okay. I think that's a biblical model almost where we face opposition. We just march on. We always continue to go forward and we resolve never to bow to intimidation. That is what we need to do as Christians. In here, in this building, that means we preach the gospel. We preach the word of God, even though there are churches in our neighborhood even who are preaching a watered down gospel, perhaps 
uh, to attract a crowd or to avoid getting canceled or, or whatever it happens to be. That's what's happening in the world. But in here, we'll continue to preach the word of God, come what may. Uh, so if the church wants revival, we have to focus on the reward and not the risk the results and not the resistance. That's what we need to do uh, as Christians marching forward. And we do this out of a heart of love, enduring opposition, knowing that God is sovereign, but knowing that he also uses courageous, tenacious people with grit to accomplish his will. And so we want not only to start well, but we want to finish what we started. Amen? Lord God, we just thank you for this particular chapter of Ezra. It shows us, Lord, that uh, everything is not going to be easy when we become Christians and when we start doing the Lord's work. We're going to be opposed, Lord, and I just thank you for this chapter. Uh, Lord, if this doesn't prepare us for uh, the persecution and the resistance we're going to encounter, I don't know what will, Lord. We see it in our world. We see it in Ezra's world. People oppose the word of God. Uh, they don't want it spoken, Lord. So please, uh, just have your Holy Spirit dwell richly in us. Give us the tenacity and grit that we need to keep going forward, Lord, to keep pursuing the gospel, to keep pursuing your mission, Lord, to continue uh, to be uh, who you want us to be in the world, Lord, so that this world will see Jesus Christ, be saved, and that we will experience revival in our land. We pray these, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.